Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Bibliophiles. We are continuing again our trek through the great conversations of the Western literary tradition. Before, however, we take up our next question, I would like to introduce the crew. My dad, Adam. Hey, hey. My mom, Missy. Hi. My sister, Megan. Hi. And my wife, Emily. Hello. Good to see you all. I hope you're doing well. I'm a little down in the dumps because I looked out my window this afternoon and it was snowing and I'm cold. There are contractors in my house. The door is always cracked open. My feet are freezing and all in the world I wanted to do was burrow under a blanket and watch a movie. I'm trying to get myself out of the headspace of this cold, wintry house. And so it occurred to me to ask all of you, what is, when you're trying to curl up with a cup of cocoa, burrow under a blanket, what's the movie that you reach from to distract you from your cold self? Ooh, that is a good question. You're that trying to crank up question. the coziness vibes. What movie do you reach for? Hmm. We all go at once. Is it necessarily a holiday coziness that we're talking about? Not necessary that it be holiday. I just, I had the same experience yesterday, wanting to be cozy and having too many house chores that bored me, but I had to do them anyway. And I ended up watching the Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth. And 10 out of 10 would recommend. 10 out of 10 <laughs> would recommend. <laughs> I know. It, the music starts and immediately you're in a cozy space. You want a cup of tea and a blankie. It's nice. Okay. I like it. I don't know why this happened to me, but when you asked the question, a scene from a movie immediately popped into my head. That must be what you're looking for, right? I don't That's know why. Exactly what we're after. I don't know why this scene popped into my head, but I don't. I don't even know the name of the actors. But it's the old David Niven, Bishop's wife. Oh yeah, you remember it? Uh, the I old do. black yeah. and white, where um, I think it's is it Cary Grant? Yeah, it's a Cary Grant film where Cary Grant is the angel who makes magical things happen. And he is in a room with an old academic who's working on an endless book that no one's ever going to read. And he makes that guy's wine glass keep filling up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that guy's oh, yeah. sipping on his wine and he puts the wine glass down and then Cary Grant goes, <laughs> and the wine glass fills back up again. And he notices it. He goes, hey, and he has another glass of wine. <laughs> what does it say about me that that's the scene from a movie I thought of when you said, what makes you warm and cozy? <laughs> Bottomless wine. What glass. I want is a wine glass that keeps filling itself back up again. I don't know that Cary Grant you. keeps filling up for you. Right. I think that's important. By, by pointing his finger at it and just sort of going. That's a good one. I I immediately thought about one of my favorite movies that begins in a rainstorm. We had hail up here this morning, but it's cold. It's really cold and kind of miserable right now. And Enchanted April. Mm. is the movie I would curl up with. Um, starts in a rainstorm, but then moves off on into Italy, um, a, a sunny Italian scene, a kind of a, a vacation at a, an Italian villa, and everything's lovely and enchanted, if you will. Mm. I'd love to go there right now, not just to watch the movie, but to go to that like to Go to there. <laughs> I Listeners who, who think that sounds like a great movie, it is, but I will warn you as Missy's daughter that it's a bit of a cult classic and it's super weird. Well, it's an art point. film. <laughs> it is an yeah, art film. Very I long. will admit, do admit it is an art film. There's a, there's one of those long montages, you know, like Disney used to do these montages. If Not this weird though. Dumbo. Oh, it's pretty weird. The Dumbo montage was like a psychedelic sure dream. Dumbo was on something. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you you get a montage like that, but it's more designed artistically to show you how the people on this vacation are reconnecting with nature and how nature's healing them. So you get weird things like a woman laying on a rock and a salamander crossing her face. I will admit that's pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. strange. 
but the rest of the movie, it's a tub of love. So what I'm <laughs> gathering from this is that your your escapist vision is laying on a rock with a salamander on your face. No, no. I want to go to Italy. Really. I want to go to okay. sun-drenched shores. <laughs> All right. I like it. That's totally valid. Emily, what about you? I'm grasping for something, anything to say to you so that I don't have to reveal what I actually do. <laughs> it becomes the cozy time of year. I think you should do it anyway. watch garbage TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's about this time every year that I fall into a, a hole and become a little little gnome that <laughs> a little mushroom that just watches my garbage TV. And so now that I have talked about it long enough I've realized that actually my respectable answer is probably Midnight in Paris. Mm. That's the coziest movie. Yeah, Emily's the coolest mm. one of us all. That's a very cool movie. Yeah. Well, that it's great. Cool. Yes. What a great soundtrack. <laughs> but no, what I actually the, that's like that's Every time I watch Midnight in Paris, I'm so glad that I did. But it's not what I reach for. I reach for my garbage TV. You reach for Survivor. I identify oh. with that. Mm-hmm. All of that is awesome. I love all of it. My The answer this time, and I love asking questions about favorite movies because every time you answer, you're in a different headspace, and so your answer is different. I've yet to meet a person whose very, very favorite never, ever changes. And that's fun. So my answer today to the question of what this this moment evokes in me is the Harry Potter franchise mm, mm. because there's lots of light and darkness. Mm-hmm. It's dark and cold outside. It's light and warm inside. It's friendless and alone outside. It's full of friends and warmth and happiness inside. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's there's butter beer. Go. There's butter beer. <laughs> there are plates of food. This is my version of dad's answer. There are plates of food on the table that will give you however much and whatever food you'd like magically. You just sit down and think of what you want, and boom, the food is before you. That's my idea of a good time. Also with Harry Potter, you <laughs> never have to, to contemplate that moment when the movies are over, because they never are. They never are. They're just gone. <laughs> gone yep. forever. It's pretty great. <laughs> uh, it's great. Well, actually, ending on the Harry Potter note makes some sense for the question that we're addressing today, because the franchise is concerned specifically with the onslaught of death. And the question that we're asking ourselves today There's is... There's no good way to segue. What is a good death? I thought that was pretty good. That's a decent segue. That's Listeners, segue. defend me on this one in the comments. Hey, man, I'm in. Defend me on the segue. Okay. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I appreciate you. So I think this is a strange question. What is a good death? And in the long lineup of the questions we've been answering, of course, we're going to come to death eventually. But I think it's a, it's a strange question, and it can be taken so differently by people of different times, for starters, different cultures in our own present... And then also differently by people of different ages. My, my concepts about death are, are significantly different from my grandfather's concepts about death as he stares it in the face. And so I think it's a, it's a really interesting question for that reason. And as I was thinking it over, I was reminded of an article that I read, a random article some years ago um, that I dug back up. And the article is about how the human brain interacts with the idea of death. And it relates to a study, a scientific study, where participants were faced with a series of pictures of human faces, people's faces, sometimes their own face, sometimes a friend's face, occasionally a stranger's, but the the faces that show up most are people that you know and yourself. And on the forehead of the picture, there's a word plastered. And the word is totally random, except in the cases where it has to do with death, like deceased or funeral or simply just dead. When a word associated with death on the face of someone that they knew popped up, the brain registered surprise. It lit up in the areas that indicate surprise and and shock. When, however, a word associated with death showed up on their own forehead, there was no brain activity at all. Whoa. The The brain responded with no surprise and no shock, however... And the assertion of the article and of the study was that scientifically, death is really difficult for us to face. Our every biological impulse is oriented towards keeping us alive. And even though we can't escape death and we know that, the brain just performs this great vanishing act where it projects the the oncoming of death onto the other and says, this is an unfortunate event that happens to other people, but it will never happen to me. The cultural implications of this are super obvious more so than at an, at any other time in history, we, especially in the first world, are as comfortably removed from death as we can possibly be, right? We send our sick to the hospital, 
and are very old to the nursing home and we retreat into a world of you know unending youth or, or something along those lines but that um the last connection that I, that I wanted to make before before turning it over and hearing your guys's thoughts was from this great article from our friends over at Mockingbird and the author of this piece whose name is Sam Bush um quotes another article from the Atlantic and this is a great quotation I'm going to read it to you this man says his name is uh James Parker limits limits thank god for limits Thank God for the things you cannot do and that you know you cannot do. Thank God for the final limit, death, who now gazes at you levelly from the foot of your bed and with an ironical twinkle because you still don't completely believe in him. And the analysis from Bush is, there's a lot to unpack here, but what strikes me is Parker's playful acknowledgement that death is something we can never fully understand because we, the living, have never experienced it. It's a place we know exists and we know plenty of people who've been there but we've yet to see pictures or hear stories from it. Death may be gazing at you from the foot of your bed, but good luck wrapping your mind around what he has in store for you. So with that little prelude, what's a good death? And what good is death? That's an interesting intro, because immediately when I thought about the question of what a good death is, you know, it's followed immediately by, and what good is death, right? As you you mentioned, Um, my mind went, to um, not so much the idea of death, culturally speaking, being something that we all want to avoid and don't want to look at. Um, I, I love that you drew in the idea that we sanitize death culturally and keep it far away from us, that we're uncomfortable talking about death, that we, as you mentioned, not only do we put our elderly in nursing homes, but um, when death does come, as it inevitably does to everyone, um, we send our dead to funeral homes, whereas once we had our loved ones in the parlor. In the, I thought you were right? going to say the parlor, yeah. In the parlor, and we we lived with the, with our dead for a time before we buried them and committed them to the earth. Um, now we we send them to the funeral home and we go visit them. Most of us unwillingly, as a as a matter of duty, we we don't like to look at death. I think Tolstoy did a wonderful job, and this is just occurring to me in his which one was it? The death of the death of Ivan Ilyich or Ivan Ilyich, when he figured the dead Ivan being visited by this this man that worked with him in the beginning and all of the um, asides that he makes to other people that he works with that he sees there um, are about what they're going to do after the funeral. How quickly can we get away from this place, having done our duty, which we know we have to do, um, said the niceties to his widow and kind of gotten out of Dodge so that we can go back game. to play whist, right? Yeah. In another room with the living and, and, you know, surround ourselves with the stuff of the living, with the other living. And I do think that that's culturally what we all tend to want to do when we're confronted with death. But when you look into literature, you see that it's full of the question of death and answers about the question you're asking of what is a good death. In current books, we see answers in, in Leafinger's Peace Like a River. In, you mentioned Harry, the Harry Potter series that takes it up over and over again. Um, in Lewis's Narnia stories and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and even in children's books like E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. Um, it surfaces in books written for children equally as those that are written for adults. Um, and so what I have to conclude is that we are preoccupied with death Mm, and that we're continually looking to find something good in this abyss that, that we seek to avoid. And isn't that interesting? On the one hand, culturally we try to avoid death in all of its reality, but in literature we figure death over and over and over again. And in every one of the books that I've just mentioned, they have something in common. They figure a sacrifice Someone that's functioning as a kind of my life for yours offering. And in Inger's book, it's a father sacrificing himself for his son. Uh, In J.K. Rowling's books, which are, like we mentioned, replete with this kind of sacrifice, we get the figure Spoilers coming? Are you going to spoil Harry Potter right now? Uh, No, I'm going to speak very generally. We get the figure of a mother sacrificing for her child, a teacher sacrificing for a student, a student sacrificing for his peers. 
um, in the Narnia stories, it's the lion Aslan offering himself for the traitor Edmund. And in Tolkien, it's Bilbo, the ring carrier, sacrificing himself for all of Middle Earth, right? In the children's story, Charlotte's Web, it's a spider offering herself to save her friend, the pig. But no matter where you look, the good death is a selfless one. Freely the offered. sacrifice. Yeah, it's the sacrifice. It's, it's the offering of the self for the benefit of the other. And, and there are so many examples of this kind of self-sacrificial death that it's really hard to narrow in on just one to discuss today. But if I have to, and I fear that I do, it would be Lee Finger. <laughs> Indeed right? you do. It would be Lee Finger. You already, you already haven't. haven't. <laughs> you already haven't. I think you like, already listed If I like have nine. to... Which I didn't. Also, <laughs> my favorite part about it was how there was a little bit of hurry in the back of your voice because yeah. you were afraid She's I was like, going to cut you off. At any moment, there's always a little bit of hurry in the back. Because they're going to just totally say, stop. <laughs> but not today, you don't. Okay, so, <laughs> so if I'm going to narrow to just one and talk about one for any length of time, it would be Lee Finger's Peace Like a River. Um, and the reason is this, that in Leafinger's depiction of this kind of self-sacrificial death, you get a peculiar kind of joy associated with it. The death is infused with joy. A boy and his father, who, remain, who shall re- remain nameless, are gunned down by an outlaw bent on revenge. And after relating the violent encounter, Inger delivers a chapter that he calls Be Jubilant My Feet in which he describes the nature of a supernatural, my life for years kind of exchange between the father and the son. Um, The boy who's received a bullet wound to the chest at a point-blank range meets his father who's received only a minor injury in what Inger terms the far country. It's um, described as a land ringing with joy and surging with the movement of souls on a pilgrimage that takes the shape of a rushing river that sings the following, Oh, be quick, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. And these souls are progressing from all different directions towards a single common goal, this distant, illustrious city. And the boy and his father itch to plunge into their company. And he says this, I seized his arm. Please, I said. Soon, he replied, which makes better sense under the rules of that country than ours. Very soon, he added, clasping my hands. Then, unable to keep from laughing, he pushed off from the rock like a boy going for the first cold swim of spring, and the current got him. The stream was singing aloud, and I heard him singing with it until he dropped away over the edge. And in the aftermath of this experience, the boy awakens in uh, this world in a hospital bed surrounded by doctors who are scratching their heads in wonder and searching for some way to explain to him that his father, who shouldn't have died, has passed away. And he, the boy, who should not have lived because of the severity of his wounds, is even healthier than he was before the encounter. And there's a kind of great exchange that has happened. Dad's life for the boys, dad's healthy lungs for the boys' diseased ones, for his destroyed ones. Um, a miracle has taken place. And because the boy, who is also the story's narrator, functions as a kind of witness in the book, he becomes a, a living evidence of the reality of this supernatural transaction. So that hmm. every person that witnesses the life of the son after this point comes to know the reality of the father's sacrifice. Beautiful. And in this way, the father's sacrifice saves, it's, it's more self, it saves more than his son. Mm. It's salvific in nature, but it goes far beyond just the boy mm-hmm. and it affects every man, every person that he meets, right? And of course, in the story, the father is a kind of Christ figure, right? But, I started by saying the reason I choose this one is because of the joy yeah. that animates the father's sacrifice. And in all those other stories I mentioned at the beginning, or, or in many, um, in particular in the Harry Potter series, we get a, a self-sacrifice for sure, but it's missing the element of joy and the giving of the life. It's all very dark and very violent. And in the case of one, um, the title character, Death is kind of thrust upon him from the beginning. He can't really evade it, right? Which doesn't, I don't say that to minimize the power the of that power, story. Yeah, the power of the sacrifice itself is certainly present, but the joy is missing. 
at the, at the same time, you know, in, in this story and in, um, for example, the Lewis story that I mentioned, you get that joy again, the echo of the joy because, because of that sacrifice. He, he springs, Lewis springs the jubilation on his characters and on his readers after, um, after the death. So there's, gr- there's a grievous death, a, a really sorrowful death, tragic. Um, and then after the death, there's this great reveal, um, by the character Aslan that suggests that though his death was real, it, it was not lasting, but it, but it itself, it, it evoked this deeper magic from before the dawn of time. He says, when a willing victim who'd committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And as he is resurrected, um, that deeper magic frees not only him from death, but frees all of the captives in Narnia, um, frees the, the person Edmund that he died for initially. And it's, it's kind of multiplied. The joy is multiplied and bubbles up out of the girls who witness his resurrection and continues to flow throughout the rest of the story to all of the other characters. So the, the story ends with a deeper joy than it begins. The joy of the sacrifice extends to everyone. So I don't know. I, I, as I look at these different stories that portray self-sacrificial death even, the differentiation I see is between those that picture that kind of sacrifice with joy, right. both in the giving and in its effects, and those that, that are tinged with this pathos, this darkness um, that leaves me just weeping endlessly. So anyway, I, what do you guys think? Mm. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's, I, I wanted to, I wanted to kick the ball over Megan's direction because yeah. her first example, Chalker agrees, agrees with your assessment. Every story that I thought of mom was one exactly like what you just said. It's a story of self-sacrifice. And, um, I was wrestling with why this is, we are preoccupied with death and it seems like the best answer that we can offer, um, not only culturally in this moment, but, but you know, all of humanity ever, when they're thinking about death, it's one that you choose, one that you choose on purpose and not just choose, uh, there are all kinds of ways to choose death on purpose, but that you choose for someone else's sake um, to better their their continued life somehow. You're giving up yours for the, the betterment of somebody else. That's what's a good death according to the stories that I looked at. But I like your interpretation that the, the best death is one that actually opens up more life, that promises a future of some sort, that continues that relationship. And I was thinking of particularly um, John Krasinski's uh, directorial debut. I'm pretty sure it's his first one that he ever directed himself. This movie, A Quiet Place, that just came out within the last couple of years. I don't know if you guys have seen it. He also wrote it, I believe, didn't he? I think so. Yeah, at least had a hand in it. But he, it's, it's a good old-fashioned um, monster movie with great twists and great suspense and it is a great scary movie and I don't want to spoil it so I'm not going to tell you most of the storyline but the the family relationships are really the heart of this story it's a little family in like a post-apocalyptic scene where there are monsters who have a supernatural ability to hear you so the whole movie is very very quiet and it's why it's so scary that if you make a single noise the monsters will come after you and in the first five minutes of this movie the little tiny kid the youngest in the family picks up a toy over the course of the story that makes noise and it makes noise and she gets, she gets uh, eaten by monsters in the first five minutes of the movie. And over the course of the story, you realize that the, the daughter, her older sister feels responsible for the death of her sister and is pretty sure that the father also finds her responsible for the death of her younger sister. And so there's this guilt that she carries through the movie in, uh, in, the end, and I do think I have to spoil a little bit uh, in order to tell you why I'm thinking of this, there is a great sacrifice. And the father turns and looks at his daughter. He's going he's gonna to save her, but she's about to get eaten by a monster. And he signs in sign language because they can't talk in this movie. You make a noise, you're dead. He signs, I love you. I have always loved you. And then he yells and dies and saves his daughter and, and the story moves on from there. But like you were saying, mom, this story particularly has a pathos to it. It's so sad and so tragic. And we're glad that he made that sacrifice and there's life that comes out of it. His, his kids and his wife survive. 
uh, because of his sacrifice, but he's not referenced anymore for the rest of the story. And there's not a continued relationship with him. There's not a hope of seeing him again. And, and that's one of the things that I came away thinking about in this story. I wish that he'd been able to sign one more thing. I love you right now. I have always loved you. I will always love you. And you can come join me again when you pass through. And I think that that's a significant difference in the two stories that we've referenced so far. The Peace Like a River, there's a promise. Come join me in this river. And in A Quiet Place, it's triumphant as much as a movie that does not recognize an afterlife can be. But I think that John Krasinski's answer is more limited than Leif Engers. He says, a good death is one you choose, you sacrifice for those you love. It's one to better the lives of your loved ones. But I think Leif Enger, it sounds like, might be saying a good death is uh, one that's not the end. Hmm. Yeah, because he says soon, very soon, right? Um, he's, he seems to be on the precipice of death in that, in that scene uh, in, in the chapter, Be Jubal at My Feet. Right. They're on the precipice. They're sitting, dangling their feet over the edge of this seeming river of people streaming towards the city. Um, we can only imagine the city of God, right? And they want to both, they both want to jump in and, and join the music. But the father basically holds the son back and says, not your turn yet, soon, soon, very soon. Mm-hmm. So there's always that idea that there is something after. He's eager to go into it. He gives himself freely and doesn't find it a sacrifice, but it's a privilege. It's a joy to go to the city that's beyond. And the boy himself wishes that he could go, but it's not his time yet. It's, it's not, he's too young. It's, it's not his turn to go do that thing. And he's sent back better equipped to live the life that his father just left than he was before because of that sacrifice and that right. glimpse he gets into the hereafter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. It's pretty beautiful. If you guys haven't read that book, I couldn't, I really couldn't recommend it more highly. You guys are both painting a really beautiful Christological image here and reason to hope for what comes after death. But you keep saying that a good death is one that you choose for the sake of other people. And I guess I'm having some trouble bringing that down to a practical everyday level because that's just certainly not the case for the majority of us who will die. That's one really specific scenario. Yeah, yeah. it really is. And it just I'm wondering if maybe a bridge between the this beautiful ideal and a re- the practical reality, uh, the, the first thing that came to mind was a phrase from C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces where we're told you must die before you die. And I wonder if the death you choose is one that takes place while you're alive. I think so. Well, I think it ties in because it's the death of yourself, whether you're you're talking physically or metaphorically, right? The death of your own self-image or the death of your own sin nature. However, you're looking at that question. It is a death that you choose or you're forced to. I like that idea. Mm. I do too. I um You mean a death as a as a metaphor for the yeah. Passing away of something, the laying down of self-interest, right? Yeah. Exactly that. Well, again, it is a Christian image, but the death of yourself and and the resurrection of yourself in Christ, right? So I may be um, repeating something that I have said on Bibliophiles before, but I recently read N.T. Wright's big book on the resurrection, called "The Resurrection mm-hmm. of the Son of God," mm-hmm. which is a gigantic academic scholarly tome on first century and ancient literature. And the whole first third of the book um, establishes that uh, in the ancient world, death is the end, that there's no discussion of life after death. There's no um, contemplation that something like that might even be possible, that the advent of the Christian era introduced the idea of life after death to the Western world for the very first time. And so when you guys say, I understand this is a Christological image that we're using, we are living in a in a civilization that is given to us by, in, in as much as we talk about this question of death, given to us by Christianity. So that's probably something to keep in mind. Mm. It's yeah, fair, it really... in other words, to talk about a Christological perspective. Well, I love the idea, though, um, that Emily is adding to the conversation of the little the little deaths that we die daily, right? Also, but those are also um, for the sake of others. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, if it's a little death, it's probably a death to self in, in one way or another. 
And why do we die to ourselves? Well, it's so that others can live. So it's Christological in the little deaths as well, I think. Well, and necessary, if you're going to have a truly good, fi- like a, a real death, a final death, it seems that you ha- will have had to have made those before because you're, that final death is probably not going to be for the sake of someone else. It's probably just going to come upon you. Unless you've had some practice, in other words? Yeah. Well, it's certainly going to be shocking if you haven't had some practice, right? Because self-denial is at the heart of, of death, mm-hmm. um, a recognition that you actually aren't God, that you aren't the center of all things, that the whole world doesn't revolve around you. And if you've never had the experience of experiencing those little deaths uh, throughout your lifetime, when you meet the great death, <laughs> it, it's probably going to come as somewhat of a surprise. I mean, what you mentioned, Ian, at the beginning of our conversation about that scientific study, how people can't register the concept that they themselves will die. Isn't that probably because we turn our face away from it and deny that death will ever come to us? I mean, individually, what are we but gods who will live forever, right? Unless we've been confronted with those little deaths along the way. You know, it's so funny that you say that. The um, the article that, that the Mockingbird writer Sam Bush was quoting from to, to begin his piece from James Parker in The Atlantic was entitled Ode to Middle Age. And I went and read that as well. It's very, very brief. But this is the, the final paragraph of that essay. At any rate, if you're reading this, you're not dead. So... <laughs> Should you leap gladly, grinningly into these contradictory middle years when everything's speeding up and slowing down and becoming more serious and less serious? The middle-aged person is not an idiot. Middle age is when you can throw your back out watching Netflix. The middle-aged person, the middle-aged person is being consumed by life and knows it. Feed the flame. That's the invitation. Go up brightly. And Bush ends his own piece meditating on that last line with this. Of course, as a Christian, the only thing that's more freeing than the idea that I don't need to understand death is the reality that I am already dead. As Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What was once a looming fear is now a reality. The fear has already been realized by the one who died for me. My gratitude for my limits has to go hand in hand with my gratitude for God's limitlessness. Only because the Son of Man was lifted up am I fully free to go up brightly. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Very so beautiful. it's not just that it's not just the day-to-day deaths to self, but it's also the admonition that we find in the scriptures, I think, to um see oneself as one dead. Which is which is such a countercultural really in any in any era, <laughs> a countercultural admonition, don't you think? Absolutely. It made me think while, while you were reading, you know, I was casting about in my, in my imagination for literary counterparts to that scripture. And, and what popped up immediately is Sidney Carton in A Tale of Two Cities. Oh my goodness. Are you, you're <laughs> That's about that literally time. Megan's second example. <laughs> yes, that is my second example. You and I are so on the same wavelength right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> however, you can't talk about him because he's my... <laughs> okay, I, you go, you Megan, go, you go. go. I love it. I, I just want if someone... We, if we had a conversation about a good death and Sidney Carton didn't come up, we would know, hardly be the literary family well, we claim to be. I'm so a student of of Missy Andrews' table also. I mean, I sat at her at her feet and learned everything I know. So this is going to be very derivative. I did assign A Tale of Two Cities to you when you were a homeschooled student. Now it feels like I'm having a test. Yeah. Well, I do think of Sidney Carton in this in this instance because he's famous for thinking of himself in this way. He's a he is um well, I'll talk about who he is in a moment, but he says of himself, "I am like one who died young." All my life might have been. At the beginning of this story, he is basically a picture of wasted potential. And he's, he's saying this in a self-pitying yeah, way. Or my Carton. whole life might have been. It's, it's, it would have been better if I had died young because I haven't done anything with myself. Right? And it's not because he lacks potential. He's got everything that he needs. But he's depressed and dispirited. And he's handsome, but he doesn't take care of himself. And he's brilliant, but he's kind of a sponge who allows his coworker <laughs> to take credit for everything he does that's good. He's deep and sensitive, but he keeps himself distant and denies himself relationships that might better him. And he's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It might have been better if he never had been, right? 
And he's got, to make matters worse in the story, uh, he's got a foil, Charles Darnay, who is his equal and his opposite. He looks exactly like him and acts just the same. He's just better. He's just done everything better and realized all the potential. Seems to be a further illustration that maybe Sidney Carton is a waste of space, right? At least Sidney Carton <laughs> thinks so. Charles Darnay does everything Sidney can do but better, including get the woman that he loves to marry him. So Sidney kind of sits back and watches Charles live the life that he wishes that he had. And it's hard, hard to sit there and watch Sidney Carton feeling all of this and not agree with him in his own self-assessment. He's full of self-pity and we pity him too. But there's a turning point in the story where he admits his state to his love, Lucy, and he says, for you and for any dear to you, I would do anything. He loves her with all of his heart and it calls out of him the only thing worth having in his soul, which is this self-sacrificial love that we've been talking about. He says, for you or for any dear to you, I would do anything. If my career were of that better kind, that there was any opportunity or capacity of sacrifice in it, like we've been talking about today, not everyone has a chance to give themselves dramatically. Um, I would embrace any sacrifice for you and for those dear to you. Think now and then that there's a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you. This is kind of a prefigurement, of course, of what happens to Sidney Carton. Spoiler alert, and if you haven't read A Tale of Two Cities yet, that's on you. It's Charles Dickens. It's been out there a long time. But in the end, he does find, find a circumstance that will allow him to make a dramatic sacrifice. And he changes places with Charles Darnay, allowing that husband to go home to Lucy, the one that Sidney loves. And Sidney goes to be executed by rabid French revolutionaries. And in this moment, it's so beautiful, he has a vision. He sees, as he walks up to get his head chopped off, he sees a vision of the future, which I think is really pertinent to our conversation today. He's looking forward rather than back at the life that he sees that he's wasted. He looks forward and he says, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. I see the lives for which I lay down my life peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And in this final line of the piece, Dickens kind of gives us both. He says, a good death is, is backwards facing. It's doing something good for those you leave behind, but also it's hopeful for you. You're going to something better than anything you could have done by sticking around. Yeah. 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 I think it's oh, so man, profound. That's so yeah. That's a way better, way better summary than I could have given Megan. It might be one of the best things Dickens ever it is wrote. Beautiful. And I read somewhere that Awfully anybody good. who starts with that book, um, when they're, when they're encountering Dickens, if they're, if they're, if they're encountering Dickens for the first time with the tale of two cities, it will be their favorite. And if they come to yeah. it later after reading other, um, Dickens novels, it'll be a flat, melodrama. it'll be a little flat melodrama, you know, but, um, but I love it. I, I think it's fantastic. And for all the reasons that you just said, there's, there's actually a passage that comes a little earlier that I was going to share. He is, it's when he has decided that he will do this thing for Darnay, that he's going to die in Darnay's stead, uh, secreting him out of, out of prison, taking his place at the guillotine, right? He, he's walking around in the city streets and he's contemplating this decision and all he's going to do. And Dickens write this, writes this, um, it was the settled manner of a tired man who had wandered and struggled and got lost, but who at length struck into his road and saw its end. Long ago, when he had been famous among his, his earliest competitors as a youth of great promise, he had followed his father to the grave. His mother had died years before. These solemn words, which had been read at his father's grave, arose in his mind as he went down the dark streets among the heavy shadows, with the moon and the clouds sailing on high above him. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die." And as he walks about the city, considering um, what is before him and thinking about this verse, he sees a series of images around him that intone that great resurrection promise. 
And he carries a little child across a muddy road in the night and hears the verse repeating in his mind. And he sees the sun rise and imagines a bridge of light spanning the air between him and the sun. Uh, he sees an eddy of water turning purposely until it's absorbed into a larger stream that empties into the sea. And he imagines it to be like him. And the purpose that had presented itself to his mind takes full possession of his heart so that he enters upon it without fear. And um, I think that that image of death, which which is reiterated throughout the story with some other characters, for example, there's a Miss Pross in the story, this faithful friend and uh, attendant to the wife Lucy, um, ends up in a, in a poignant scene grappling with the enemy, Madame Defarge, to prevent her from accosting Lucy and adding her to the death tumbrels uh, at Madame Guillotine, right? Uh, and in the process, uh, a gun is fired, discharged near her ear, and she goes deaf forever. Uh, a little death, right? It doesn't kill her body, but she, it, she, it takes something from her that she can never reclaim. There are all kinds of deaths like that in this story. So you can see that Dickens is actually up to something. <laughs> yeah. As he generally is. Yeah, not just on the larger plane of uh, the great death, but he sees death as central to life in a really unique way. <laughs> well, he even is able to laugh at it. Isn't this the story in which there are grave robbers? Y- yes. Who are like the comedic mm-hmm. relief? Yes. There's a whole family yes. of grave ever- robbers who are stealing stuff from dead people the whole story. Yeah, you're exactly right. So I, you know, this is a really interesting, I love the conversation that's developing as we're talking about how death is um, not the end of something, but that it's the beginning of something and that it's maybe central to life itself. So that's one stream of this conversation in, you know, Western literature or, you know, Western culture, suffused as it is by Christianity, but it's not the only one, right? Right. Anybody ever read Atlas Shrugged, for example? Oh my heaven! Atlas Shrugged. Okay, so I'm not on. I wasn't supposed to prepare anything for today, but I got to tell you about Atlas Shrugged. Please, Atlas Shrugged is one of the coolest books ever. Right? It's about it's about the the guys, the smartest guys in a society, getting oppressed by a um, uh, by a government that's growing on beyond its bounds and deciding to peace out and disappear. (laughs) Fine. You're taking all of our ideas. You're taking all of our money. You're you're building your society on our backs and not giving us any credit. We're going to disappear. And so they disappear, and it becomes this great mystery about where they went. And their 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 leader is this shadowy figure named John Galt. And the whole novel, the whole fabulous novel, is finding out who's John Galt, where did he go, how do I follow him to his utopia where all the smart people live, right? Um, um, away from everybody's clutches. And, um, this is fabulous. So there's one, there's, there's this one moment where the heroine of the book has, um, found John Galt's secret treasure trove and she has to get through the door and he's a super scientific genius. And so he has this special lock on the door. And in order to get the, break, break the lock, she has to remember the password and she's casting around in her mind for the password. And finally she remembers that John Galt has written an oath, the reciting of which will open the door. And so she says, she says, John Galt, John Galt's oath. And this is the oath. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. Wow. And she says that. And as we read the story, we're supposed to go, yeah, John Galt, give it to us straight, baby. And she says the (laughs) oath, the door opens and she gets the treasure and the objectivists win. And Ayn Rand wins and her whole philosophy of life is summed up in the John Galt quote because they do shrug and they escape and they build this, this utopia in the Colorado mountains where no one can find them. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. Woof. Isn't that cool? I mean, isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, that's insane. You know, that bad news for Ayn Rand, the yuppies would have definitely found them. <laughs> oh, they would have found them. We lived yeah. up in a tiny Colorado mountain town for a while. There are not that many places to hide. <laughs> the, whole, the whole presupposition underneath the oath, My of goodness. course, is there is nothing after death. That death is the big enemy. And what you do at all costs is preserve your life. Well, it, you know, it works economically speaking, I suppose, you know. Um, oh, I would argue with you there. Oh, maybe so. But... It sounds sort of Definitely satanic. Definitely not an argument for this podcast, though. <laughs> Definitely doesn't work on this podcast, yeah. is that what she said? Right. 
No, we're moving on. Okay, so I, I hear you wrapping up, and you can't do that yet because because <laughs> I have enough. one more that I want to talk about. And I think that what Dad just shared sounds pretty satanic, and so that reminds me of my last example, <gasps> which comes from Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, oh, his baby. epic retelling of human history, right? Uh, and in Paradise Lost, Milton creates two heroes. We get Satan, this dark villain who sacrifices himself for his demonic hordes, volunteering to do the difficult task of breaching earth and corrupting all of God's favorites to exact a revenge for his fellows. Um, and simultaneously, we've got Jesus, right? Um, so Satan serves as a kind of foil for Jesus, the blessed son who volunteers to be tribute and sacrifice for fallen man, paying his deathly pen- penalty to preserve all of God's people and defeat the dark enemy. And there's a conversation that we get to overhear between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And uh, it comes from book three, lines 203 to 213. God explains, man disobeying, disloyal, breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead and so losing all. To expiate his treason hath not left, but to destruction sacred and devote, he with his whole posterity must die. Die he or justice must, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? At which point Jesus responds, and this is book three, lines 227 to 253. Father, thy word is past. Man shall find grace. Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me, man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off and for him lastly die, well pleased. On me let death wreck all his rage. Under his gloomy power I shall not long lie vanquished. Thou hast I yield and am his due, all that of me can die. Yet that debt paid, thou wilt not leave me in the loathsome grave, his prey, nor suffer my unspotted soul forever with corruption there to dwell. But I shall rise victorious and subdue my vanquisher, spoiled of his vaunted spoil. Death, his death's wound shall then receive and stoop inglorious of his mortal sting, disarmed. And it, this this response to God's, who, who, is there anyone who will do this thing, right? Um, is a kind of echo of mm-hmm. Satan's offer when the question, whom shall we send to do this nefarious deed is proposed, right? After he proposes his plan to corrupt man and uh, cause God to abolish his own works through justice and exacting revenge uh, for the demon's exclusion from heaven. This throng of, of demons has, has asked, whom shall we send in search of this new world? Whom shall we find sufficient? And Satan has responded, long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light, but I should ill become this throne, O peers, and this imperial sovereignty adorned with splendor, armed with power. If aught proposed and judged a public moment in the shape of difficulty, or danger could deter me from attempting. And so he says, I'll go, right? I'm going to do this thing and, um, and win glory for myself, right? None of you will go. It'll be me. I alone am going to do this thing that we've proposed, and I'm going to be glorious as a result. And because Milton sets up such a such a foil relationship, this contrast is really stark. You see Satan making the enterprise to get glory for himself, jealous for the job, so that he'll have this standing among his peers. He's mm-hmm. basically setting them up. But on the other hand, with with the the Christ scene, right. we see the heavenly Son sacrificing himself for his brethren and for the Father, so that God Himself will be glorified in the end. And that just sounds a lot like what you were talking about, Ian, the, the, um, that idea that, um, 
that the sacrifice of Christ inherently, it, it goes beyond himself, um, glorifying the Father and also invite, inviting us into a kind of glory because the death that he died, he died for us. And as we are in him, um, the life that he won through that death is ours as well. So that death loses the sting, right? What is it that he says there? He says, death, his death's wound shall then receive in stoop and glorious of his mortal sting disarmed. Um, reminds me of, of John Donne, uh, uh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Death, thou shalt die, right? Beautiful. Mm. So I don't know. I think death has a terrible sting unless, unless, we, unless we know Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Gorgeous. Yeah, I think there can be no good death. Um, there can be a sacrifice, but after the sacrifice, sorrow, right? Annihilation. But with Christ, there's the hope of something beyond that death. There's a life. That's what gives those uh, perspectives on it, like Ayn Rand's or Ernest Hemingway's or Jack London's, the weight that they have. Because absent that uh, supernatural out represented by Christianity, the honest way to look at it is to you know, succumb to Ian, what you read at the beginning of the hour. We can't really get our minds around it. We shut it out. We live for the now. And our answer to the question, what's a good death is there isn't one. Right. And it doesn't have to be taken as seriously at that point. And I think that it can be laughed at in some ways. And I think that's why existential humor is actually kind of funny. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be funny if, if death was the end. So you're telling me that Christianity is what allows for and introduces dark That's a comedy. great idea. I that is such it. a so great idea. <laughs> Write a book. <laughs> Write that book. I love well, it. It's, sort of, it's in keeping with what happens on All Saints Day, right? Um, uh, October 31st, when we all dress up and we mock the devil in death with costumes. <laughs> we laugh at how dumb the devil is. Yeah, basically. basically. We laugh at how dumb oh, okay. the devil is. I hear you wrapping up, Ian. <laughs> well, we're going to try it for the third time. We'll see if we get out alive here. You guys, thank you so much for your contributions and for this little tour that we've taken of the Christian West. What a wonderful answer to the question and an encouraging one at that. Um, thank all of you listeners for joining us as usual. And we'll be back soon for more beautiful answers to the biggest questions on Bibliophiles. In the meantime, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bibliophiles. We think conversations like these are among the most meaningful ways we can enter the great conversation, and we're glad you decided to join us. But listening in is only half the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send along your comments to i.andrews at centerforlit.com or join the discussion on Facebook by searching for Bibliophiles with an F. Tune in next week as the crew tackles one of the most difficult philosophical quandaries in the human experience, the problem of pain. Happy reading.